I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'm taking this time to ask you during the month of December to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our efforts. This is the only time of the year when I make this request, so I'm adding something. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate another individual to receive the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started, and thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, December 18th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The new spending approved by the current president could exceed the new spending approved by either of the last two presidents. And we're just wrapping up Joe Biden's first year in office. And that's to say nothing of unanticipated demands for spending, like attempts to mitigate the costs of a global pandemic. Jonathan Bidlack of the R Street Institute discusses the implications. As we record this, it's you know early December and build back better in whatever form uh, it currently sits is probably not exactly what will uh, pass if it does. Um, how big is the spending that uh, Joe Biden, you know, we're not even through his first year as president, how much spending is he approved? Yeah, it's it's pretty big. I mean, so if if you look at this last year, there are essentially three big things that are on the table. The first was the COVID package from, you know, back in March, and I think that was about 1.8 trillion. Then you had the latest infrastructure package which which passed, which was 1.2 in total, but was, you know, roughly I think 760 uh billion in in new spending. And now you've got build back better, which is, you know, estimated to be over 1.6 trillion in new spending. So you sum that up and you're looking at over $4 trillion. Uh, to put that in context, that's that's more new spending than than Donald Trump authorized in four years as president. And it's more than than uh, Barack Obama did in eight years. So you can certainly see the way that, uh, you know, the, the trajectory that we've been on uh, has been very much an exponential curve. So I, I guess, what does that tell us about the process of agreeing upon spending that, uh, Congress routinely engages in and then it seems increasingly routinely engages in more. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of members in both parties, frankly, that now think that um, there are really no consequences to this spending. I mean, we've we've operated for a long time under this assumption that we don't really need to worry and we're not going to really pay any sort of, uh, you know, any, any sort of consequences. And of course, you know, now people are talking about inflation and, you know, rearing its ugly head and whether or not that's transitory or not is kind of a, a moot point because, you know, we've sort of, to some degree, started to reset that conversation a little bit. I mean, you know, Senator Manchin, his his biggest objection uh, besides sort of the the overall size has been, you know, the, the fear that it's going to basically fuel additional inflation. And so um, I do think that on some level, that conversation is is different than it was before. You know, I spoke with uh, David Walker uh, here earlier, and uh, he makes the point that, you know, whenever we engage in new spending, uh, his thought is always, well, what about the old spending that you've already committed to? Mm-hmm. That is, you know, in, in his, to hear him tell it, $100 trillion of uh, liabilities that the federal government will uh, must meet uh, in coming years, and there's not necessarily really a plan to pay for a lot of that, or most of it, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, if you if you were if the federal government were a corporation and you were sort of 
you know, putting together your audited financial statement, you would be you would be looking at all of those future flows and would be incorporating them into into uh, your assessment of whether or not that co- that company is viable. And so, you know, when we talk about the the federal government, you know, we talk about the national debt being, you know, 28, 29, nearing 30 trillion dollars. But that's only what's accrued so far. I mean, we don't really have a plan to pay for all of these all of these programs far off into the future. And and the other point to make here, too, is that it's not just entitlements. You know, I think that conservatives and libertarians often like to talk about entitlements, you know, because it's the thing that we can project. But, you know, if you were if you were projecting forward in 2008 or, say, 2007, you didn't necessarily know there was a financial crisis that was going to come and, and blow up the budget. You didn't know that there were, you know, maybe additional wars at one point or, of course, a pandemic now. And you don't know when there's going to be additional spending on natural disasters. So... There's also this other huge problem here, which is that when you look at all of the the big spikes in spending that we've seen, it's oftentimes been in that discretionary portion of the bu- of the of the budget uh, coming from things that maybe weren't foreseen. And so it's not just a matter of getting entitlements under control. It's also about you know coming up with a better process to actually deal with these unforeseen things that uh, you know you just you can't really budget for. Aside from you know a balanced budget amendments, a debt to uh, GDP or debt to government spending limit, like the Swiss debt break, what can we possibly do to slow the rate of growth of government? I mean, those things are all great ideas, right? I think, I think um, you know, sometimes political scientists or think tankers who study these these questions for a living always want to look at, you know, what's the perfect rule and, and you know, that we can put in place that will solve the problem. Um, I think that's a necessary but not sufficient component. I think that the, the thing that is oftentimes missing is just you need to have that political will. And I think that we have essentially an accountability problem where, you know, members of Congress or presidents go and, and they say one thing and then they actually do another when they're in office and um, you know who do you really hold responsible for these individual uh, these individual packages and so um, you know I think there's that element of it that until Americans obviously change their their perspective on what the proper size and scope of government is and until we start to build mechanisms um, to actually hold people accountable for their specific votes um, you're probably not going to be able to craft a rule that uh, that will get things under control. And and the last point I'll make here too is that let's also keep in mind that sometimes the economics goes in uh, and catches up with you and forces your hand. I mean, Sweden had this problem. They had really generous benefits in the 90s and they didn't have the ability to fund them and they had to, to essentially impose new rules. So um, maybe we end up we end up having that, you know, but of course, uh, you know, you don't, you hope that it doesn't come to the point where we have a crisis to, to you know, Force our hand. I mean, one of the key differences between uh, the U.S. and Sweden when it comes to like welfare state spending broadly is that they kind of pay for it up front. Yeah, and you know, and of course, we have advantages. I mean, we have you know not just the fact that we're the reserve currency, but also we have you know we have huge amounts of natural resources. We have you know the most educated and uh, you know productive workforce in in the world, and so that counts for something. I mean, there's a reason why people buy you know U.S. Treasuries, and it's it's for those for those reasons. But you know that that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to happen ad infinitum. Um, and you know the the debt is is certainly a big problem, but. You know, there is this other problem that, again, we don't talk about as much, which is that 
when we're spending and we're we're taking private capital, uh, you know, capital out of the private sector and putting it into generally less productive, you know, public sector programs, um, that has a very real cost now too. And so, you know, and as we're seeing with inflation, right, there are there are very real costs that can happen in the short term. Um, it's this is not just the sort of, um, you know, the 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 talking point that people say is, you know, our children and grandchildren down the road, but it's not just about children and grandchildren. It's also about, you know, the economy that we, that we are living in today. One of the problems that terrifies me, it doesn't keep me up at night, but it is, it is very concerning is the notion that a pretty small increase in our cost of borrowing in the United States would wreak enormous havoc on, uh, the ability to for the federal government to meet various other obligations. And I think even in that situation, the feds would find a way not to cut spending. You might be right. I mean, you know, I'll maybe take the more optimistic side of the, of this and say that I don't worry about that too much. What I actually worry about is sort of the, you know, the frog in the boiling water slowly being turned up where you just don't realize what's happening. I mean, on some level, you you almost wish that, you know, uh, something happens suddenly so that people actually take notice. I mean, this is again- what And we, sooner than later. Well, right, right. But I think the, the biggest fear for the United States is that we just kind of, you know, middle along and don't really make any sort of fundamental changes because we don't have to in the, in the immediate term. And, uh, and then of course you reach a point where you're, you're sort of off the cliff and, and past the point of no return. And, uh, it is interesting. I mean, you know, I, I make the comparison a lot to the way that people talk about the issue of climate change. I mean, I think there's a lot for fiscal conservatives to learn from sort of the public dialogue that's existed around that issue. I mean, there are many Americans who sort of grasp that, you know, again, whether or not you you view it as is absolutely a problem, you know, and at what point is is an open question. But but uh, you know, when you when you think about uh, that issue, most Americans grasp this concept that you can have problems that you need to take action on early. Um, and I, I wish you know perhaps more people on our side would would work to make um, you know make headway uh, and and maybe make that comparison as as directly as as possible. Jonathan Bidlack is director of the governance program at the R Street Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.